as Owen said, we're going to be in Judges again this week. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Judges chapter 7. Uh, in preparation for this morning, uh, a few weeks back, I sent out uh, a post on social media. Some of you uh, may have seen it. In fact, I know for a fact some of you responded to it. I was asking for the greatest underdog story of all time. I was slightly overwhelmed by the response. Got dozens and dozens and dozens of suggestions. Not time to list all of them. But whether it's Maya Angelou, Edmund Dean Morel, Lopez Lemong or slightly less highbrow than those, Leicester City, Eddie the Eagle, Cinderella, the Jamaican bobsleigh team, Zimbabwe beating England at Trent Bridge back in 2003, Swindon Town beating Arsenal to win the League Cup back in 1969, or me persuading Helen to marry me. We, We absolutely love a good underdog story. Now, all that being said... You may well be tempted to view today's story, it's a pretty famous story of Gideon going up against the Midianites, you may be tempted to view that story as a kind of underdog story. But as we're going to see, Gideon's army was so far beyond being underdogs, it's not even funny. This is merely, not merely, a lesser team going up against a slightly better team. It's more akin to the church central under-11s five-a-side football team taking on a full-strength Barcelona 11-a-side team at the new Camp and despite being 20 nil down at half-time coming back and absolutely thrashing them while blindfolded with their legs tied together and without a goalkeeper. It's that kind of a story. Let me just catch you up with the story so far so you kind of understand what's going on. If you were around a couple of weeks back, you'll remember how we saw that God had sent the Midianites into Israel to chasten them. But when Israel cried out to God in anguish and pain, God had compassion on them. And as a result, he raised up this guy Gideon to be their deliverer. And as Rich explained last time round, Gideon was not your typical action hero. We first encounter Gideon, if you remember, he's cowering in fear in a hole in the ground. But over time, he gains courage, at least momentarily, after God assures Gideon that he is, in fact, with him. And so, right at the end of chapter 6, God tells Gideon to go and mount a resistance against the massive, marauding Midianite militia. And Gideon, true to form, is somewhat reluctant until God finally reassures him through the famous fleece test that he really will lead him in victory. And it's at that point that we're going to rejoin the story in verse 1 of chapter 7. So, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, Jeroboam, it literally means uh, smasher of Baal. Uh, That was the name given to Gideon. Gideon and his army They got up early and went as far as the spring of Harod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. I tell you, you can learn so much about how God works in your life through that statement alone. It's got to be one of my favorite Old Testament verses. You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves 
by their own strength. Therefore, verse 3, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So, 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. Now, I guess you could actually make the argument this may have been a smart move. I mean, 10,000 brave soldiers might well be better than 32,000 when two-thirds of them were wimps. But the next part makes abs... Sorry, I mean, holding nothing back here. I mean, it's Remembrance Sunday and all that. Uh, But the next part makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But the Lord told Gideon, verse 4, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all of those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Now look, over the years, I've heard any number of different attempts to creatively explain why God chose those who lap from their hands like dogs over those who knelt down by the stream. Like, for example, this allegedly proves that God loves dogs way more than cats, or that those cupping their hands were more poised and ready for battle. But in reality, I don't really think there is any hidden meaning here at all. It was just a random test designed by God to get rid of 97% of the army. And it works. So, what can we learn from this? What on earth does this story show us about how God works in our lives today? Well, six things. Yes, six things. Uh, I know some of you mock me for my three points, so I've doubled it uh, in retaliation. Six things I think we can learn from this. Number one, when God wants to use us, he will often start by weakening us. When God wants to use us, he will often start by weakening us. Now, don't hear me wrong. God never delights in hurting us or pain in our lives. But God totally wants us to trust Him. Above all else, He doesn't want us relying on ourselves. He wants us to depend on Him. You know, that's one of the most important things we can ever, ever, ever learn in life, which I think is why sometimes God will effectively reduce the size of our army so that we're left with no choice but to trust in Him. You say, well, what do you mean by reduce the size of our army? It could be that you have issues with your health, or it could be that you go through a tough patch at work. Maybe you have money issues. I'm not saying that God is the one doing any of those things directly, just that God's sovereign purpose in allowing them to happen might be teaching you to lean into Him like never before. Because here's the thing, 
if dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. Now, I don't know, maybe you struggle to see how weakness could ever be an advantage. But I tell you, if it makes you lean into God where real power is, then it's got to be a colossal advantage. I mean, just think back over your life. For some of you, perhaps it's through the pain of your parents failing you in some ways that over time you, you got to learn more of how much you could rely on your Heavenly Father. Brothers, maybe there's a period when you were laid off work that you experienced firsthand that you could trust in your heavenly supplier. Or, or when you were battling loneliness, it was then that you learned that God is the friend who sticks way closer than a brother. It's like weakness forces you to lean into God. And there, and sometimes only there, can you learn the four words that can absolutely transform your life. God is always faithful. He's always faithful. Listen, sometimes you will never know He's all you need until He's all you have. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. Paul says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. You're thinking, boast about your weaknesses? Who does that? Like, here's another place I'm below average. Here's another place I've failed yet again. I mean, who on earth would do that? What on earth would possess someone to boast about that kind of stuff? Well, Paul says, I speak about these weaknesses in me and I do it gladly because it's here that I am most able to display Christ's power and not my own. You see, if I were to stand up here at the front and for 35 minutes just boast about all of my great strengths, you might sit there and say, well, yeah, he's incredibly arrogant, you might say that. You might also say, well, that's quite impressive. I, I wish I was more like Jonathan, but I could never be. But if I stand up here and I boast about my weaknesses, about how, despite appearances, I'm actually one of the most shy and introverted people you can imagine, how, as a child, I needed speech therapy because I couldn't articulate my words properly, how I struggle with nerves to the extent that every Sunday morning that I'm speaking like this, um, I have an upset stomach in advance. Even before getting up to speak, I have to do kind of breathing exercises to calm the nerves. If I share with you about my weaknesses and then tell you about how Christ's power has worked through all of that, you're probably more likely to say, well, well that's so inspiring. I mean, if God could do that in Him, and I have access to the power that He has access to, and who knows what I could do? Just have a listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1 verse 7. He says that your faith, namely your confidence in God, is way more precious than gold. Just think about that. 
In whatever struggle you're in, whatever storm you're going through, in whatever battle you're in, what's the greatest asset you have? It's not the size of your army, it's the fact that God is with you. In the battle to provide for yourself, what, what could be more valuable than gold? Well, according to Peter here, the greatest asset you can have in any situation is faith in God's goodness. You know, your strengths are potentially way more dangerous to you than your weaknesses, because your strengths always at least have the potential to keep you from trusting in and hoping in God, which I think is why at the end of the day, if you really want to be used by God, you do need to come to the point where you humbly realize how absolutely impotent you are from where you have little choice but to fall in hope on God's power. To quote a guy called Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries of a previous generation, he once said, God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence upon Him. And so, in His kindness, God will often weaken us in order to bring us to that point. It's like sometimes to get you to lean into His power, He has to reduce your army. So, I want you to perhaps rethink what God might be doing in your life. Maybe you're experiencing the equivalent of an army reduction right now. And I want you to be open to the essential lesson that God may be trying to show you through it. That's the first thing. Second thing that God teaches us through the reduction of Gideon's army is that He sends salvation not through human might, but through the weakness of humble obedience. God sends salvation not through human might, but through the weakness of humble obedience. This is a message I think comes through many of the stories in Judges, whether it's Ehud, Barak, Samson, the story of Gideon, God is way more impressed with our obedience than our strength, which in many respects points us, doesn't it, towards His ultimate strategy for saving the world. God would one day send salvation into the world, not through a king who would ride in and conquer the world with a superior army, but through His own Son who would lay down His life in service and humility and obedience. It's like, read the Gospels, time and time again in Jesus' life, we're confronted with His weakness before He's arrested. We find Him, don't we, washing His disciples' feet, a task that was normally reserved for, for the lowest servant. During His trial, He's mocked, He's humiliated, He's spat upon, unable, it seemed, to defend Himself. He's so weak, he physically is unable to carry his cross. Someone else has to step up and help him. And he dies with his hands stretched out, nailed to a cross. An ultimate picture of abject weakness. And yet through that, God brought a glorious supernatural resurrection. And so often, this is how it happens. This is how it works. We humbly obey, often in weakness, and God brings power. You keep sharing Christ. 
you keep patiently parenting your child. You, you refuse to give up praying for a relational turnaround. You, you endure the pain of injustice without seeking revenge. And so often, in the midst of your weakness, God sends a miracle. I'll tell you, this is a message that comes loud and clear through this story of Gideon. God doesn't send miracles through human might, but through the weakness of humble obedience. Returning to the story, God finally gets Gideon's army down to the size he needs it, just 300 men. Verse 9, that night the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I've given you the victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Now, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, your dream can mean only one thing. I think, well, what earth would that be? But he seemed to be clear. Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. Now, I don't want you to miss the humor here. The picture of Gideon isn't of a mighty warrior or some fearsome force of nature. He's not even a hurled rock. He's a tumbling piece of bread. Now look, I'm not much of a camper, and if you threw a bit of bread at a tent that I'd put up, it just might fall over. But that wouldn't happen to a normal tent. And so through this a slightly humiliating story, really, Gideon recognizes that God is kind of reassuring him and mocking him but reassuring him as well. And so verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed low in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and he shouted, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. Third thing we learn from this story is God patiently deals with faltering faith. Don't know about you, I actually find it deeply comforting how God takes such time and patience to reassure Gideon. You see, I think we can kind of have this caricature of God sitting up in heaven saying that if you don't have absolute confidence in me all of the time, then I'll reject you. That's not what we see here, is it? We see a God who is sympathetic towards fear and doubt I just point over the side. Do you, do you remember the occasion when, when, when a guy with a sick son came to Jesus in Mark 9, verse 22, and says, Jesus, look, if you are able, could you do something to help my son? Now, I'd respect, expect Jesus to respond with an, if I'm able? I mean, what's wrong with you, man? Don't you know who I am? Instead, he says, no, everything's possible for those who believe. The man's response I believe, but help my unbelief. 
In other words, Jesus, look, I think you're a great guy, but I'm kind of 60-40 on this one. Now, if I'm Jesus, and fortunately I'm not, in case you're wondering, but at this point, if I'm Jesus, I'd have said, well, look, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Why don't you go memorize a few scriptures, come back when you're ready to go all in? Jesus is altogether more gracious than I would have been. His response, he healed the boy. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, among other things... God's okay with your doubt. He doesn't mind you coming to him with your questions. And so, if you're here today and and you have some doubts of your own, maybe you have questions, maybe you're uncertain about a few things, it's okay. I want you to know this is a safe place for you to come with your questions. This is a safe place for you to come and ask God to reveal his faithfulness to you. But fourthly, at some point, despite that, you do have to take the risk. I mean, just think about what's going on here in this story. Gideon's afraid, and God's trying to reassure him. And so God tells him to go deep enough into the enemy camp to overhear a conversation in a tent. Now, again, if I'm Gideon, I think I'd have said, hey God, I'm not sure if this came through clearly or not, but I'm afraid. And so the last thing I want to be doing is creeping alone into the Midianite camp at night, close enough to hear a conversation in a tent. I mean, couldn't you give me some kind of assurance out here on the edge of the camp? Like, could we just do that fleece test all over again? Funny enough, I've got the fleece with me right here. I mean, tell you what, I'll close my eyes, count to ten. When I open my eyes, could you have sculpted the fleece into some grand origami structure, a swan or something like that? Why did God get Gideon to go into the enemy camp, into a place of danger, in order to get assurance? Well, I think it's to teach us this lesson. If you want God to develop your faith, then you've got to be willing to take some steps of faith of your own. Because here's how faith works. God reveals a little, and you take a step. And God reveals a little more, and you take another step. As James 4 verse 8 puts it, you draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Listen, if you're waiting for God to answer all of your questions before you'll be willing to follow Him, you'll probably never get there. You simply need to take that first step, and He'll explain more as you go. There's this other passage where it says that God's word is like a lamp to your feet. Now, if I'm being brutally honest, I don't want a lamp. I want a whopping great spotlight. I don't want to see right to the end of the path. But God's design is for us to get just enough light for the next step. And if in faith you take that step, then he'll show you the next one. It's like God grows your faith as you go. And so some of you, you simply need to take that next step. I guess we've all heard of birds that teach their young to fly by shoving them out of the nest, because the mother knows that the little bird is never going to fly until it is put in the place where it absolutely has to. At some point, you just have to take the risk 
And so returning to the story, Gideon divides the men into three companies of a hundred each, gives each one a trumpet, a jar, and a torch, and he tells them, light your torch and put it in the jar. Then we're going to line the valley wall, and when I blow my trumpet, each of you needs to blow yours and then smash your jar and raise your torch. Verse 19, it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly, they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then, all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Now just think about this. This was absolute genius. You see, let me just describe what was happening here. If you didn't get it in the reading of the verses, in the dark, the smashing of the jars would have sounded quite like thousands of swords being raised. And Gideon did this at the beginning of the middle watch, which means that a third of the Midianite army was returning into the camp from being on duty, a third were getting up to go out on duty, and a third were still fast asleep. So just at that precise moment, the Israelites blow their trumpets, smash their jars, and all these torches appear uh, around the top of the valley. Everyone in the camp slightly groggy, it's the middle of the night, they're waking up, it's dark, you have what seemed like thousands of soldiers lining the canyon above you, and a bunch of soldiers are coming back into the camp. So in your tiredness, you, you kind of assume these people coming back into the camp, they're attacking you, and in the dark, they all kill each other, and there's not a single Israelite casualty. Which leads me to lesson number five, God can turn weakness itself into strength. God can turn weakness itself into strength. Here's the incredible thing. God never explained to Gideon how to conduct this battle. Gideon seems to come up with this plan on his own. It's like God's reduction of Gideon's army forced him to come up with a creative new plan. And it was a way better plan because it resulted in a victory without a single Israelite casualty. And so Gideon's weakness actually became the source of his strength. Now, believing all of that leads me, sixthly and finally, to the only logical conclusion that success ultimately is joining God wherever he is. For me, the message of Gideon's whole life can be summarized in this phrase, this appeal really. Join God where He is. Because it's way better to be by yourself but with God before the most impossible army than to have that massive army on your side without God. Really, the very heart of Christian maturity is when you learn to say, I'll go anywhere with God and I wouldn't want to be anywhere without him. And so the question isn't, what do I prefer? 
or even what do I feel capable of? The question is simply, God, where do you want me? Because God, if that's where you are, then that's where I want to be. To once again quote Hudson Taylor, he said, all God's giants have been weak people who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. And that right there, I think, is a brilliant summary of this chapter in Gideon's life. However, sadly, if you're familiar with the whole story of Gideon's life, you know it doesn't end well. At the end of his life, Gideon gets proud, arrogant, puffed up. It's like his power and success go to his head. He starts using his position for personal vendettas. Uh, it makes this idol commemorating his victories and the Israelites start bowing down and worshipping that idol. That's a whole other story for another day. But for now, I just want to say, perhaps the greatest danger you will ever face is getting out of a posture of weakness. In my experience, Christians more often than not will pass the test of adversity. Yes, it's tough. I'm not saying it's easy. But people I've observed clinging on to God through adversity tend to get through. It's often the test of prosperity that people fail. Listen, when you get strong and proud and self-sufficient and begin to think to yourself, I have all that I need and I have no need for God anymore, that's when things are in most danger of unraveling and falling apart. And so whatever you do, never forget where you were when God found you or the grace He's shown you and how much He's done for you and how much you still desperately, desperately, desperately need Him. And you also need to beware that even after the greatest spiritual victories, you still have the potential to slide right back down into the hole from whence you came. Always remember that Christianity begins with the realization that I'm not righteous enough to save myself. I need a savior. And it continues every single day for the rest of your life with that sense of, I need God's power for every good thing in my life. And so as I draw to a close, I just want to ask you to spend a few moments reflecting on where this message, this story lands for you. What's God saying to you? Maybe God's brought you to a moment of weakness. Maybe right now He's wanting to reassure you. He's wanting to say to you, look, I'll be your security. I'll be your ever faithful companion. I'll be your justification, your righteousness, your glory, the lifter of your head. So don't despise your weakness. Don't look down on yourself. Don't disqualify yourself because you look around and feel that others are better equipped than you are. If it forces you to depend on God, then potentially your weakness is your greatest strength. Or maybe God's delivered you from weakness in the past. But you realize, if you're being honest, you've slipped back into a sense of independence from God. Be honest. 
Are there areas in your life where you've allowed pride to seep in? Right now, maybe God is pleading with you. Wake up! It's say, don't make me do something drastic to weaken you. Won't you preempt that by returning to that posture of dependence? Won't you lean into Him?